Congress has managed to appropriate six or seven trillion dollars for this and that in the past few years, but it's never been able to pass a regular federal budget on time. The upcoming September 30th deadline will bring another continuing resolution, and CRs don't have to spoil agency planning. More now from the Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office, Jeff Arkin. Mr. Arkin, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me today. And you have looked at three agencies that have muddled or managed their way through continuing resolutions. Let's begin with just the characteristics of CRs, because they're not all the same. And your latest report kind of describes the forms and ways they might take. Review that for us first. Sure. Uh, And as you mentioned, they are fairly common. Continuing resolutions, or or CRs as we call them, have been a, a very consistent feature of appropriations in the federal government. Since 1977, when we switched to a fiscal year starting on October 1st, there's been at least one CR in all but three of those years. So again, this is a fairly common occurrence at this time. In particular, we looked at the last 13 years, so starting in 2010 up till the current fiscal year of 2022. And over that time, there were a total of 47 continuing resolutions, so at least, again, one in every year. And the average time was about three months. So although sometimes they may go only for a day or two, uh, other times they're quite a bit longer. There was one that lasted almost half a year. And in a couple of years, we had a situation where eventually a continuing resolution was passed for the entire fiscal year. There were a few times when there was a lapse of appropriations, and so times when regular appropriations or a continuing resolution had expired without a new continuing resolution in place. And that caused what we what we commonly refer to as the government shutdown, or at least the partial government shutdown, the last one being in 2019, which lasted for over a month, as I'm sure many of your listeners remember. Sure. So it sounds like the CRs have more variants than COVID. And looking at the operational legal guidance, GAO itself has compiled quite a library of guidance and information legally, operationally on this, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the main source of that guidance are principles of federal appropriations law, or it's commonly known as the Red Book, uh, cleverly because when we used to print things, it had a red cover. And the Red Book provides a broad discussion on many aspects of federal fiscal law, uh, including continuing resolutions. And so it provides illustrations of the legal principles and their applications through discussions of statutes, judicial decisions, uh, other sources like GAO, legal decisions and opinions, and and gives guidance for agency officials on how to operate during a continuing resolution, although often it's somewhat straightforward in the sense that the amount of money that an agency gets will be similar to what it had the prior year. There are a lot of nuances, and there can be exceptions, and so it's an important source of guidance for agency officials to look at during a CR. And in this most recent report, anticipating a CR again coming in just a few weeks, you have looked at three agencies that seem to manage well through CRs. And which ones were those? We looked at, like you said, three. The Department of Agriculture, and in particular, its Rural Rental Assistance Program, uh, which provides rental subsidies to eligible recipients. The Department of Education's grant program for predominantly black institutions of higher education. And then the Department of Health and Human Services, low-income home energy assistance program, which provides states, tribes, and territories with grants to operate 
home energy assistance programs for, for low-income households. These are agencies then that have a what you might call a retail component in that they affect directly taxpayers. Exactly. We wanted to look at agencies and the programs that serve, uh, serve taxpayers, serve the American people. We have looked at continuing resolutions in the past strictly from an agency focus, and we wanted to go and look and see what the effects are on recipients and how do recipients manage during continuing resolutions. We're speaking with Jeff Arkin. He's Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And what do these agencies in general tell you are the challenges, and how do they get through them? A main challenge that we hear is that they have to spend time planning and preparing for a potential shutdown. Even though shutdowns have been fairly infrequent, they can't happen. And when that does happen, not everything at the agency grinds to a halt, but they have to make decisions about legally which operations can continue and which can't. And that takes some planning, and it may, it may vary from year to year. So they're spending time on that rather than focusing on their activities that serve American taxpayers. And it can also cause delays in a number of things. So, for example, hiring or contracting decisions, things that you really either can't do or would be imprudent to do during a period where you don't know what your final budget is going to be for the year. And that can affect the services that these agencies and programs provide as well. Yes, I imagine it would cause them to be maybe a little bit trigger shy with respect to signing up people and so forth, simply because they don't know what their appropriations will be. And as we all know, you can't spend money that's not appropriated. Exactly, exactly. And you see that from the recipient standpoint as well. They have to plan their spending for the year. If you're a grant recipient, it's hard to know exactly how much to spend if you don't know how much you're going to get for things like higher education grants or low-income housing subsidies. What are some good strategies then? What do these agencies do that got them through this? You could call it a crisis, except that it's just a common one. Yeah, and I think that's one of the features, given that it has become fairly common Agencies now have experience with continuing resolutions, and they're able to plan for them. So they can plan their spending, thinking about spending in later parts of the year when it's maybe less likely that there'll be a continuing resolution, delaying things like hiring decisions, and having sort of a strategic approach to how they are going to spend, how they're going to contract, how they're going to hire. They've also um, worked on prioritizing spending during a continuing resolution and so identifying which are the activities that are most critical for them to undertake and focus on while they're in a period before they know what their final budget for the year is going to be. This sounds like a situation where the political leadership at various agencies who have not been there, maybe through the last one and the one before that and the one before that, should really find counseling from their career people who have maybe some experience here. Yeah, exactly. And the offices, the chief financial officer offices and budget offices within these agencies, again, by now, do have a lot of experience with continuing resolutions. There are a lot of nuances in how they work. And and so, again, GAO has a lot of guidance out there on how to do that, because the main thing that you don't want to run into is any sort of what we call anti-deficiency act violation, where you're spending money that you don't have, or you're spending money at a rate that goes above what it should be under a continuing resolution, and that's what agencies are really trying to avoid. Sure. Only Congress can print money. Everyone else goes to jail. (laughs) Right. Jeff Arkin is Director of Strategic Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. Take care.
And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pr- um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. <laughs> sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did. You know, in retrospect, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement, And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. 
Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from those stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, 
that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.